I don't know if you're anything like me, but one of the things I really like to do is to ask questions. Anyone who knows me well will tell you that I'm always asking questions and perhaps sometimes I ask too many questions, but to be honest, I don't know if you can really ask too many questions. One of the interesting things about the letter to the Hebrews is that the writer is also asking questions. In the part we're looking at today, chapter 10, there are at least two questions that the author raises. I don't know if you spotted them already. There's one in chapter, in verse 2, and then there's another one in verse 29. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, it's going to be helpful to have it open at Hebrews chapter 10, as I'm going to keep uh, reading and referring to different bits of the chapter So as I've been reading through chapter 10 over the past few weeks, there seems to be another question that is raised indirectly. And that question is, what does God really want? I think it can be helpful from time to time for all of us to ask the question, what does God really want? Obviously, you're more likely to ask that question if you already believe in God. But even someone who doesn't believe in God might wonder in a hypothetical way, what is it that God really wants? Anyway, that's the question that I'd like us to be thinking about as we continue to delve into this chapter this morning. And you'll see that I'm going to keep coming back to this question again and again, as well as asking a few other questions along the way. And I hope that by the end, I have convinced you that Jesus invites us to ask questions like this. I think he wants us to ask questions because that's how we learn. And we need to ask questions because things are not necessarily as straightforward or as simple as we would like them to be. For the past two or three months now, we've been looking at the letter to the Hebrews as a, as a church together. And it's not always been easy. It's full of strange and unfamiliar things like priests and the temple and the law and the most holy place and Melchizedek. If you'd ask the people that this uh, letter was originally written to, what does God really want? I think they'd probably have said something like obedience to the law or sacrifices and offerings but the writer of this letter right here in chapter 10 makes it clear that God seems seems not to want those things at all in fact looking at verse 5 we read sacrifice and offering you did not desire and then in verse 6 it says with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased these were people who had a different way of doing things to the way that we do things they had different religious traditions and customs they'd spent most of their lives probably going to the temple offering and sacrificing things to God with the help of the priests there and once a year there would have been the very special day where the high priest went through the curtain into the most holy place in the temple to offer the annual sacrifice for all the sins the people had committed during that year And we heard a bit about that last week from Emily with the help of her amazing temple made from Lego, if you were watching. But the writer underlines this point in verse 8, where it's repeated, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. It's pretty clear then that animal sacrifices and burnt offerings were not what God really wanted. But they were necessary, they were needed for a time according to the Jewish law. At the moment we have laws or guidelines that are necessary for the time that we're living in. We still have to wear masks or face coverings in shops and on buses. We can't travel to places that we might want to go to. We can't see people that we might like to see. We're not even allowed to sing together inside the church building to worship God. 
Wouldn't it be great, we might think, if these rules were no longer necessary? Well, in verse 18 of our passage, the author writes, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And this probably would have come as something of a shock for the first readers of this letter, even though that it doesn't surprise us at all 2,000 years later. They probably thought that they would have to keep on sacrificing animals and making offerings as they'd always done. So why were these sacrifices necessary in the first place, you might be asking? And that's a very good question, a question for which I think this chapter provides a helpful answer. If this letter to the Hebrews was a film, then it would probably need to have at least a 15 certificate because there is there are some quite disturbing things written in it, not to mention all the references to blood and sacrifices. There are places here in chapter 10 where we would probably want to close our eyes or look away if we were watching it on TV. For example, starting in verse 26, it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So here's the answer to our question about why sacrifices were necessary. Sacrifices saved the people from God's judgment and punishment, the, ju the judgment and punishment that sins deserve. Now it's not very comfortable to think or talk about God's judgment for sin. In the world that we live in today, if you talk about God's judgment for sin, you'd probably be considered an extremist or perhaps a bit deluded, or stuck in the Middle Ages. But the writer of this letter would say, and I agree, that if you don't take God's uh, judgment for sin seriously, then what happened to Jesus on the cross, and everything Jesus did, and all that he taught, makes no sense at all, and has no meaning or importance. Listen again to what the writer has to say in verses 28 to 31 of chapter 10. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we may not understand all of this, but it's clear that the writer is not pulling any punches. The language of judgment and punishment is very strong for a reason. Sin is a serious thing, even if we don't talk or think about it very often. For those of you who find it interesting, the word sin appears in every chapter of this letter, apart from chapter 6. And here in chapter 10, it's mentioned at least 10 times. So it's probably worth thinking about the question, what is sin and where does sin come from? Especially given how often it comes up in this letter and the fact that it's not a word that we often hear mentioned outside of sermons at church. Now, I realise that this is quite a heavy subject for a Sunday morning. But if Hebrews was a train journey, then for the last few weeks, we've been going through a dark tunnel. But let me reassure you that in chapter 10, we're approaching the end of the tunnel and that there's definitely light at the end of the chapter. And then we'll be on to the homeward stretch of the journey with the last few chapters of this letter coming up over the next few weeks. 
so please stay with it if you can. Now if we go back to the question, what does God really want? We can find a bit of light, I think, in verse 22. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In essence, I think that's exactly what God wants. People who draw near to him with sincere hearts and full assurance. People who've been made clean both inside and out. That's what God really wants. You see, if we go back to the very start, in the beginning, God created the universe. He created the earth and filled it with life and beauty and good things. He created people and put them in a garden and he was with them. There was a, a closeness. There was no there were no barriers between the people and God. God walked with them and spoke with them in the cool of the day. But then something happened, didn't it? The people did something that caused a separation between them and God. And that something is called sin. They didn't listen to what God had said. They didn't pay enough attention to him. They thought that they knew better. They believed the lies that they were told rather than God's trustworthy instructions. They didn't do what God wanted and they were driven out of the garden. I think God wants what he's always wanted for us to be able to draw near to him, for us to have a closeness to him where we share life together, walking and talking and enjoying his creation and goodness. In one sense, that original garden was also a most holy place. It was where God met freely with the people he created a place where they experienced his kindness and love without any hindrance. The world that we live in today is not the way God intended it to be. We've always lived in this world and so we've grown used to the way things are. But that doesn't stop us from dreaming and longing for a better place, a world without sin and without the effects of sin. That's what God really wants. So what might be a solution to all of this, do you think? The only solution the world seems to offer is to tell us to try harder, to do more, to make more effort, to be successful and happy. But we know that no matter how much we try or how many self-improvement books we read, we're never going to achieve a perfect, sin-free world. No, no, no. The sad truth is that we're all broken beyond self-help or self-repair. That's not to say that we shouldn't make an effort to improve, but it's not going to be the solution to the world's biggest and most serious problems. All the things we worry about today, global pandemics, poverty, racism, sexism, pollution and climate change, wars and nuclear weapons, inequality, poor health, selfishness, greed, isolation and loneliness, you name it, it all points to our fundamental problem and our need for outside help. We need God's help, we really do. The solution to all our problems is given in this letter here in chapter 10. We have it explained really clearly to us. Let me read from verse five. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. 
And again, reading from verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. He, first he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. You see, we all know what Jesus did for us. Even people who don't believe in Jesus have heard about his death on the cross. When Jesus came into the world, he left heaven behind. He chose to become fully human, just like us, in order to become the high priest that we so desperately need to represent us before God and to deal with the problem of sin by making atonement for our sins to close the gap between us and God that was caused by sin. And in order to do that, he needed to be perfect. He needed to be a perfect sacrifice. So he faced all the same temptations that we face every day and he obeyed God perfectly. He did exactly what God wanted. He didn't sin so that when he died, he could pay for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It was his love for us and his love for God, his father, and his father's enduring love for him that enabled Jesus to persevere to the end. This letter contains so many things, so many truths and promises and encouragements that can help us to keep going to the end, to keep trusting God rather than giving up when life becomes difficult or hard. The writer of this letter was concerned about the difficulties and hardships and challenges that the readers were facing. They seemed to be in danger of drifting away or turning away or falling away. So it was really important to remind them in this letter about who Jesus is and about why they need him. And not only that, but also to remind them of the difference that Jesus has already made to their lives. In verse 32, the author tells them to remember, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you yourselves knew that you had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Can you or I really <clears throat> imagine what these people had to face? I struggle to think how I would react if faced with such, such um, challenges like prison, persecution, insults, having your property taken away from you. It all sounds very difficult and, difficult and stressful to say the least. But Jesus never said that following him was going to be easy. Quite the opposite, in fact. And that's something that we ourselves need to be clear about. Being a Christian is not the easy option. It's interesting that the writer of this letter never addresses the people who would read it as Christians. The first readers may never have thought of themselves as Christians. It was perhaps a word that came into use later on. No, the word that the writer uses here to describe them is worshippers. God wants them to draw near to him with sincere hearts to worship him. Now, what does it mean to us, I wonder? What does it mean to worship God? That's another question that's important to think about. When we look in the mirror <clears throat> or when we think about who we are, do we see ourselves as worshippers? Is that one of the ways we identify ourselves 
as worshippers of God? Is that what we think when we look around at other people too? That like us, they can be seen to be worshippers of God. And if it is, then what does it actually mean to us? When do we worship God? How do we worship God? What do we do that God considers as worship? Is it only when we're together with other believers singing praise to God? If that's the case, then for some of us, it's been quite a while since the last time we worshipped God. Or can we worship God in other ways and when we're doing other things? Can we worship God when we're doing our jobs or when we do our shopping? Or when we're looking after children or seeing friends or family members or neighbours? Can we worship God when we do things that we really enjoy, our hobbies and pastimes? Are we worshipping God when we listen to him and when we do what he wants us to do? Can we worship God by encouraging one another, perhaps? Can we worship God by spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, as it says here in verse 24? These are things that are worth considering and thinking about together, and that's what I think it means to be church. One thing is sure from this letter, we need to keep going. We need to hold on. We need to persevere. So that when we have done the will of God, when we've done what God really wants, we will receive what he has promised, as it says in verse 36. I don't believe it will do us any good at all just to drift along in a half-hearted way. The writer encourages us to look ahead, to be waiting with expectation for the things that God has promised. In verse 1 we read that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So that must mean that there really are good things coming, things that are worth holding on for. In verse 25, it says that we should encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. We might not be totally sure when that day will be, but the reality is that the day we're waiting for is nearer now than it was yesterday. And in verse 37, it says that in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And that could well be the day that's approaching, the one that we're being encouraged to look forward to. The day when Jesus will come in all his glory to bring this present world to an end and to bring into being all the things he's always promised. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful, as it says in verse 23. Everything we believe And all that we hope for as Christians is founded on two things, the promises of God and God's faithfulness to his promises. So let's ask ourselves, do we really know what God has promised and are we convinced that God is faithful? To be honest, if you're like me, some days are better than others. Some days I can be full of confidence and assurance, but other days I struggle a bit more. Some days I read the Bible And I'm reminded clearly of things that God has promised and then other days things might be harder and I forget or I have difficulty finding encouragement or hope. And that's why the writer tells us we need to encourage one another daily. Everyday encouragement is what we're told we need as believers. So if we haven't encouraged anyone yet today, then let's see what we can do about that. Or if we're in need of encouragement today, then let's pray that someone will call or come around, or send a message to encourage us. After all, that's what we all need, and that's what it means to be church, I think. The greatest encouragement could simply be to take to heart and remember what Jesus has done for us, not forgetting the kind of people we are 
and what he's rescued us from. When Jesus came into the world, he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And verse 10 tells us that by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, in verse 14, we read, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So let's take a moment just to take that in. If we trust Jesus, if we trust in Jesus, the son of God, then we've been made perfect and holy. We may not feel that way sometimes, but it can really help us if we're able to see things the way God sees them. Later on in this letter, the writer tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this is why we need Jesus and we need what he and only he has done for us. His death on the cross is not a story that someone made up a long time ago. It really happened. And it's the turning point of history. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, everything, absolutely everything has changed. That's how important all of this is. So if you're someone who has questions, then find someone. Please find someone to ask or to talk with. Whatever you do, don't get distracted because all of this matters hugely. Alternatively, we can always talk to God. We can do that anytime we want to, in fact, because God is waiting patiently for us to come back to him. He's the one who made us. He's the one who knows us. And not only does he know everything about us, he also loves us and invites us to draw near to him. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this letter to the Hebrews. We thank you for the encouragement that, he, that it is to us. And thank you for your help uh, to understand who you are and what you've done for us. Jesus, we need your help. We need you to, to work in our lives so that we can live lives that, you, that please you, lives that, that, uh, that you desire for us, lives that are full of, of grace and love and kindness towards others. Lord, please give us strength and, and forgive us. We need you and we ask these things in your name, praying that, that you would help us, Lord, to, to live for you and to honour you and to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.